turn in your Bibles to, again, the book of Isaiah as we look together at chapter 2 this morning. Our series is called The Gospel According to Isaiah. That's because of, of Isaiah's rich revelation, the unveiling of the gospel, who is Jesus the Christ, his work of salvation. In fact, the name, if you remember, Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. Kind of summarizes the whole book. I will, our text this morning um, will be in verses 1 through 22, the entire chapter uh, we'll be looking at this morning. And what I want to do this morning is um, I'm going to read the verses, three sections. I'm going to read the book, uh, the section um, when we get there. So each outline will have a certain amount of scriptures, and we'll read it as we look at each section, kind of save a little time, but yet of course, read the Word of God. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. But I'll leave that up. That's where we're going. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. If you remember, chapter 1, uh, and let me just say this as well. Leave, if you don't have a Bible, bring one. If you don't have one, own one. Go some in the back. Have the Word of God open before you. We're going to be looking at bigger chunks of Scripture, and you'll need to have the Word of God open, whether it's an iPhone or Droid or any kind of tablet. But uh, I encourage you to have the open when we go through the text. Um, we went through chapter 1, two weeks. We saw many major themes that we will continue to see throughout the whole book in chapter 1. Not only were we introduced to Isaiah, the son of Amos, God's spokesman to Judah, the southern kingdom, we were given very important information and clues and realities concerning who God is and also concerning who man is and man's need for salvation. We learn in chapter 1 that God is a God who speaks. He's a God who is ruling over all creation. He's the Holy One of Israel. He has perfect moral righteousness and goodness. He is holy otherness. That's what holiness means. He is infinitely different, set apart from anything in all creation. We learned last week that the Lord is Adonai, Master, Superior. He is the Yahweh, God, Lord, the Covenant God. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Almighty the sovereign who has omnipotent control over all creation. This is all in chapter 1. He is the mighty one of Israel. In other words, he has unlimited power and authority whose providence will bring about all that he has set out to do in and through his people. Lastly, he was a God, we said last, as we see in chapter 1, who holds his people accountable for their rebellion, their idolatry, for their insincere worship. But we also have been learning, just as we like to sing here at King's Chapel, though our sins they are many, his mercies are more. We witness already this theme we will see over and over in Isaiah, that God is just, God is righteous. God's wrath is against all sin and rebellion, but also his love, his mercy, his grace, and his faithfulness to his own people. He keeps his promises Last week, we looked at the promise of redemption, chapter 1, verse 27. He will redeem those who turn and repent from their sins and their rebellious ways. He will not only redeem them, he will wash them, we looked at. We, he will cleanse them. He will bring restoration to them. Isaiah ended with what happens to those who refuse to repent, those who forsake the Lord. It says they shall be consumed, chapter 1, verse 31. Although they may think they are strong, verse 31, they'll become tinder. And both of them shall be burned together with none to quench them. 
So as we turn to chapter 2, we begin a new section that will take us um, really through chapter 4. And basically the theme, if I can wrap it up, is, is this. If you trust in the world and all that the world offers you, and you will become proud and you will forsake the Lord. Or the option is to humble yourself, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I want grace, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, the authoritative hand of God, so that at the proper time, he, God, may exalt you. That's the theme that will take us for the next two or three weeks. Simple outline, verses 1 through 5 speaks of the glorious future. Verses 6 through 11 speaks of the present rejection. And then verses 12 through 22 speak of the final victory. So turn with me as we look at the glorious future, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the infallible, authoritative, inspired word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah... And Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, excuse me, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. In the first five verses, you see in the beginning, in verse 1, the superscription claims that these words that are coming from Isaiah does not come from Isaiah's own lips or his own imagination. It's the things that he saw, which means the things that he perceived through divine unveiling. This, this revelatory unveiling insight is from God. It's a supernatural work of God as he reveals the will, his will, to Isaiah They use the word saw, but it's really revelatory, understanding the will of God being given to Isaiah. That's why in the Old Testament, some of the prophets were called seers, S-E-E-R, seers. Seer is someone who who perceives hidden truth, a revelatory who declares the, the, the hidden word, the hidden will of God, making it known to God's people. And therefore, Isaiah is saying, what I have to share isn't mine. It comes with the authority of God himself. God is speaking, God is guiding, and that should bring us to the place of trust. And that's what we're going to see today. Trusting him and giving us wisdom to make wise and good choices. I believe this section comes from the time of Uzziah. I believe, again, he's speaking to those who live in Judah, the southern kingdom. We talked about that. And Lou are in Jerusalem, the city's capital. And what we see in verses 2 through 5 is this this unveiling, this revelatory will of God shown to Isaiah, proclaimed to the people of this ultimate city, 
this, this ultimate gathering of God's people, this ultimate rule of God in His kingdom. As if to say, look and see and embrace the glorious future so that it can change the present situation, what's going on in Jerusalem. We've talked about that. I mentioned this illustration. I just think it's a good one. Reminds me of two men who are side by side, one another in a factory, and all they do for 12 hours a day, seven days a week, is put light bulbs in a box. Day in and day out. One is told at the end of the year, you will be given $10,000. The other man is told doing the same job at the end of the year, you will be given $10 million. Same job, different outcome with very different perspective each day as they go to work. I can guarantee you that because of the end. The question that some may ask in this text as we, we look at this glorious future is when will this take place? It's a good question to ask. It may not be the ultimate question, but it's a good question. I mentioned last week that there are places in the book of Isaiah that are interpreted a little bit differently depending on your understanding of what's called eschatology, the study of last things. Here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is one of those places. When you read things like in chapter, uh, one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, the latter days, referring to the messianic kingdom, the establishment of the mountain of the Lord, the invitation to come to this mountain so we can learn the ways of God, walk in his path where, where the law and the word will flow from, where God will judge nations, Decide disputes among nations. We gotta, when is all this going to take place? I want to just digress for just a couple of minutes and give you a very quick synopsis of two opposing views on eschatology and what is called the millennial reign of Christ, taught in Revelation chapter 20, the reign of Christ for a thousand years. Now, for those of you interested in eschatology, if you Google, uh, or maybe go to YouTube, Google uh, John Piper, a night of eschatology. I can send you the link. It's a two and a half hour, maybe, uh, roundtable uh, discussion over three prominent views. We're going to look at two because I think one of them is not even worthy of looking at. Uh, but two prominent views. It's a great study. Two hours. Uh, I give that to you. So there are some who interpret Revelation 20, the thousand year reign of Christ. And I'll wrap it up. You'll see where I'm going there. A thousand year reign of Christ, not as a literal earthly reign, but it's taking place between the first advent, the coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. It's called the amillennial approach. Amillennial, amillennialism. I've been saying it all week. It's going to drive me crazy. Therefore, they believe the second coming of Christ occurs concurrently with the general resurrection of the dead, rapture of the church, immediate return of Christ. He judges the world, ushers into a final kingdom, new heavens, new earth, Revelation 21. Nice and neat, clean, done. The premillennialist believe in a literal reign. They take Revelation 20 literally that Christ will reign on earth, that a second coming will happen and he will then reign for a thousand years on and over the earth before the final consummation of God's redemptive purposes in the new age and uh, in the new heaven, new earth, the age to come. Literal reign on earth in Jerusalem. What makes it a little bit even more, I don't want to say difficult, but the difference is, is that the amillennialism well, the Amun, Amun, yeah, Amunlilianism, I can't say that a hundred times today. They see Israel, the national ethnic people of Israel, uh, well, they, what they see is that when Christ came, he fulfilled all the promises to the Old Testament people. 
Christ comes, all Old Testament promises have been fulfilled in Christ. The pre-mill people believe that although many of the promises were fulfilled in Christ, but there are continuities, there, there are continuities, you know, there's, there's, there's the same Old Testament church, New Testament church to some degree, but there's also differences. And the pre-mill believe that ethnic Israel has a particular place, Romans 13, function in this millennial literal reign of Christ on earth. Okay, which brings me to the text. In Isaiah 2, which parallels Micah chapter 4, I believe, and now some, some of you now are waiting, you probably know where I believe, at least the pastors here do, and, and let, let me say this, let me say this. Whether you're pre-mill or amill, there's been a lot of, um, how am I going to say this? There's been a lot of generosity toward each other. In fact, our pastoral team don't all believe the same thing when it comes to eschatology. That's okay. It doesn't break fellowship. Years ago, and at other times in church history, it broke fellowship. It doesn't, and it hasn't. Between the Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, you see men who love Jesus, love the gospel, hold to the truths of the things that we need to have closed hands on. But yet, eschatology, it has been a generosity among brothers and leaders, which is awesome, which is awesome. Um, so, but I believe that Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, describes the actual reign of Christ on earth. I'm a pre-mill guy. A universal reign of Christ a thousand years on the earth as he reigns from Jerusalem with king of kings and lord of lords. Okay? That, that's, that's where I look. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Let me say one last thing before we move on. Scripture presents the doctrine of last things as a motivation... For faithful, trusting God, faithful living. The doctrine of last things is not given to us primarily for a timetable so that false prophets can run around and try to get everyone to buy their books. John Frame said this. I thought this was really good. So far as I can see, every biblical passage about the return of Christ, eschatology, is written for a practical purpose, not to help us deploy a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience, end quote. That's a great quote. City of Zion, Jerusalem, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is located actually on a rather small mountain, lower than even the Mount of Olives in the east, which for some in that day, in the ancient days, they may see that hill on which Jerusalem was built as somewhat inferior to other places. You see, in the Near Eastern time, temples were built on high mountains because that's where their gods were, closer to the heavens. In fact, Zeus was thought to live on Mount Olympus, Greece, Baal, on Mount Cassius in northern Syria. And here is this mountain, this temple in Jerusalem, located on a hilltop, not the highest of hills. And what Isaiah is saying in chapter 2, what this text is saying, that although Zion may not be on the highest of the mountains geographically, it is still the mountain where the true God, the living God, the creator God is to be found. Isaiah foresees the day when the holy mountain will stand supreme, the highest of mountains, shrinking and minimizing total irrelevance to all other mountains. All other gods. It is the mountain, the only mountain, where humanity should seek God. It is the only mountain and the only place where man can seek the Lord. The church 
is going to be, and it already is, under greater and greater attacks as we proclaim the exclusivity of Christ, the exclusivity of his word, and the exclusivity of the gospel. We will be labeled and prosecuted as being intolerant. We should always be loving, but we will stand on the gospel. We will not say that all religions are valid ways to God. There's one mountain, one gospel. All other gospels are false gospels. Zion is the highest mountain because it is the, 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 the exaltation of God's dwelling demonstrated to all the nations the glory and the greatness of God. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall establish as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And by virtue of the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, hanging on a Roman cross, lifted up on the hill of Golgotha, not only Jews, but all men, all women, come to him for rescue, redemption, and reconciliation through that one gospel. It has always been God's plan. Always has been God's plan. For mankind, all of mankind, not just the small nation of Judah, to come to him for salvation. All nations flow, look what it says, up to the mountain. <laughs> Last time I looked, things flow, flow down from the mountain, right? Lakes, rivers, down from the mountain. Not in this glorious kingdom. Not where the kingdom in which Christ reigns. This gathering is not you climbing up the mountain by your works. Because Zion's divine radiance and appeal draws pilgrims uphill to the mountain. It is a supernatural work of God. And all that are coming and flowing up to the mountain have come to see and to hear. Not some charismatic person with the, the last and greatest options for success. Some, some political candidate who will give us all the right answers and all the right promises. No, those who flow up the mountain will hear the main speaker. It'll be God himself. He will teach those who walk his ways. He will teach those who will follow his truth, his law, his word for all to hear. And as King, verse 4 the ultimate judge of the universe, God will help these nations settle their differences. No need for swords and spears. For a glorious reign of peace will come. New Testament has a lot to say about peace, does it not? True peace of the heart can only happen when that sin barrier, which separates us from God, as in we, we were enemies of God, enmity with God because of our sin. When that barrier is removed, by the one mediator between God and man, his, man, his name is Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.4, we can have peace. But man and mankind, unaided, without the help of God, cannot establish any earthly peace, a condition of peace. Only when God brings it. And, in, and when God does so, the text tells us, he'll take the resources of death and destruction and convert them into resources of production. Swords? And now will you be used for plowshares, for crops. Spears will be converted to prune hooks, which are knives that care for the vines. And God will, and there'll be no need, it says at the very end of, of verse 4, 
to, to, to practice and to train for warfare. Now, I believe this prophecy is completely filled in the future messianic kingdom, but as we see in many cases, there is the already and not yet. We're waiting for the final consummation. The gospel is the gospel of peace. It has been proclaimed since Christ came, lived that perfect life, died on a Roman cross, was lifted up and died and then buried and rose from the dead. And and the giving of the Holy Spirit, the disciples who received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost went through the world proclaiming to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world, all nations to come. And we here at King's Chapel in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ Invite all people, verse 3, to come to the mountain to learn from God that he teaches us. We may walk in his ways. That's obedience. We learn that the Holy Spirit has been given to those children of God by grace so that we can follow and obey the ways of God. We don't, we don't follow and obey him for, in order to be saved, but we are saved and regenerated to then follow and obey God says it will flow from that mountain, his word. So we, the people of God, the children of God, the church, are to regularly and consistently preach the word of God, gather together as God's people and declare a message to all the nations, to all the tugs, tribes, to, to abandon, we'll see, their false idolatry, their idolatry, their false beliefs, and flow up to Zion, the, the place where God dwells, the place where God's word is proclaimed, a place where God's people gather Verse 5, really transitional verse. It speaks of what precedes in verses 1 through 4 and also what the prophet is going to say in verses 11 and following. Family, verse 5, walk in the light, is an encouragement to live. Now listen, it's an encouragement to live in the present light, to live in the present light of the future glory of God's kingdom. To live in in the present light of the future glory of God's kingdom. Gary, Dr. Gary Smith in his New American Commentary says this, Isaiah ends his brief look, verse 5, at the ideal Zion of the future with a call for his audience to transform their thinking, to reorient their worldview, and to change their behavior based on their knowledge of what God will do in the future. You catch that? To walk in the light of the Lord means to walk day by day in the blessings and favors of God, in his presence, in his care, in his truth, and in his word. Before we jump, let me ask you this question. We'll go to the next section, but let me ask you, are you you living, valuing the present more than the future? Or, or, Or are you valuing the future as you live in the presence? That's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah's vision is meant to reorient our hearts on God. His prophetic eyes look beyond this world to a new world in the future. And we're summoned by God to live in the power of that future. Our security, our, our significance, our, 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 just our lives does not depend on this present situation, but the promised future in a world that does not exist yet except Praise God in his promise that he always keeps. Famously, C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you'll get neither. The glorious future. Now, as we look at the 
present rejection. Chapter 2, verse 6. Let me read to you verses 6 through 11. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled. And each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In some ways, Isaiah is continuing to call out his people of their rebellion and rejection we saw in chapter 1. This time their rejection is their trust in worldly goods that could cause, that caused them not only to cling to their idols, but boast in them rather than trust in their God. Isaiah is not saying that God is forever and eternally abandoning his promises of grace and mercy. God makes it clear in 1 Samuel and Psalms and other places that he is not going to abandon them utterly. What he's saying is God is rejecting them, leaving them to their own devices. You know, sometimes it's not so much that God is purposely against you and your plans that are against his will. Rather, sometimes it's a removal of his hand. Go. If you don't want to listen, go. God loves those, he, God chastises those he loves. And regardless of whether his hand is against us or he's allowing us for our own destruction, all is in his sovereign plan. All of it he will use for your good and his glory. John Piper said this, I rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Reigning and ruling, right, over all creation. I rejoice in the sovereignty of God because he, God, wields it in all things to preserve himself as my greatest treasure. It's on my email if you ever got one. I love that quote. God will do whatever it takes for me to remain centered on him that he is my greatest treasure. I said this before, the Bible from Genesis to maps, <laughs> Revelation, is first and foremost about the historical redemptive work of God in Christ Jesus, the person uh, and work of Christ in our salvation. But secondly, the, the word of God is a call for believers to, to completely rely upon God, not just in theory, not just in theological perspective, although that's important, but all of life. Everyday life, trusting God is a, is a key challenge for every believer. Trusting him for our provision, trusting him in our safety, our health, our children, our businesses, our church. Yeah, even, even the political situation we find ourselves in, we must trust the Lord. But yet we find here in Isaiah, and we know there are some that just won't humble themselves. There are some that just will not trust God. There are some that come to the place of never realizing that God alone will meet the needs that you have in this world and the one to come. I mentioned this a few weeks ago in our introduction that when Uzziah, time that 
Isaiah is writing, the king of Judah, Uzziah, had great prosperity in his kingdom. He sought God. He, he sought counsel from the priestly, uh, from priestly men. He had great success militarily. He had prosperity. He had strong military strength. Second Chronicles 26 tells you. But Isaiah, the king of Judah, got proud and he became unfaithful in the end to God. And by his own destruction, to his own destruction, he entered the temple of the Lord that priests are supposed to do to burn incense of the altar of incense and God struck him down with leprosy. Isaiah verse 7 speaks of their, this prosperity. It says their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. So as the king goes, the people go. And, when the, and it seemed like the more they had, the more they found it difficult to trust God. They were satisfied in their own accomplishments. Their accumulation of gold and silver provided what they needed, and their horses and chariots protected them. That's a military thing. And if anyone knew what it meant to have stuff taken and to be humbled, it was King Uzziah the leper. When everything's going well, don't raise your hands. <laughs> There's this kind of cloud that settles over us. And we come to the place where God becomes less important, less, we, we need him less. We're doing well. And some of you may, no, no, not me. I'm trusting and relying upon God. But you know when it shows up the most? When all of a sudden, the bottom drops out. And as children of God, what do we do when the bottom drops out? I mean, we fall to our face, we get on our knees, and we cry out to God. That's what we should do. But it's there, I think, at times we go, wow, I, I haven't really been here in a while. <sighs> Have I really been dependent on God? So the question for us, are we trusting in God? Are we trusting in God or are we trusting in something or someone else? It's easy to trust in physical things, another person, money, our own wisdom. It's hard to let go. But Hebrews tells us, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. Verse 6 tells us that God rejected his people. They were full of pride. They were full of things from the east. Notice that. Fortune tellers like the Philistines. And the word full, you'll see it in verse 7, filled with silver, filled with horses. Verse 8, filled with idol. That Hebrew word means absolutely to the brim. No room for anything else. God says, I reject you because you're full of things. The city that was once full of justice, chapter 1, verse 21, is now full to the rim of destructive foreign influences. The Philistines use their fortune-telling, this magic, <laughs> these divinations to learn events, and it was very completely forbidden in Scripture. And when it says striking hands with the children of foreigners, what it means is that Israel and Judah now has extended this warm greeting to the foreigners in their land. Now, in and of itself, that's not a bad thing, but like 1 Corinthians 15, don't be conceived, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. What they were doing, they were copying the foreigners' lifestyles, entering into business transactions, political ties with them, 
And inevitably, the people of Judah involved the worship of their gods. And by emulating them, by doing what they did and walking in their ways, they lost this distinctive identity and obligation as the people of their covenant God. What a contrast. Think about this. In the latter days, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, nations will, will flow to Zion as the ways to learn and see and hear the truth of God. Now will the nations come to Zion and influence it to follow their superstitions and their false gods. Passage reminds me of 1 John 2. John the Apostle writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, impulses, desires of the eyes, things we see, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world, from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, the world runs after false wisdom, things that cannot redeem, things that cannot justify. The world clings to earthly treasures where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. False gods, false idols, all these things, the worldly systems, making idols. Calvin said our hearts are idol factories, so we get caught up in those things. We try to run to the worldly things to help us feel like we are worthy, we're accomplished, we're purposeful, and we're valued rather than running to God and trusting Him. Verse 8, he says, the land is full of idols, and now you're bowing down. The people of Judah have this glorious God, this glorious future, as we just learned, whose God chose them to be a special people. His desire is to bless them, to give them what they need, but they refer, or prefer to worship idols, things made out of wood, things that can do nothing. It's a matter of pride, verse 11. Haughtiness, that's the problem. The antidote, verse 9, is humility. And let's be honest, before we judge, let's relate, right? This issue of pride, the issue of pride is not Something just for Judah. It's a universal infection which none of us are immune. Thousands of ways our pride comes out. Thousands of ways and devious ways we establish oneself as prideful. And the most ugliest, I think, is a religious pride. Such pride can eventually have only one outcome. Look at the confrontation of God. Verse 10. All the pride can do is hide from God, who will soon come and humble the proud and exalt himself. And there, you know, the, the verse 10, and it's this hiding. You can't hide from God. It's like, Adam, where are you? Like, you, there's no, this, is, this is folly at its best, trying to hide from God. Folly at its best. They, they go running into graves cut from the rocks, holes dug in the ground before the terror and splendor of God. And Isaiah is emphasizing over and over that the proud will be humbled and God alone will be exalted. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. Not maybe. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God's plan is to show his glory, his revelation of his majestic splendor as he rules creation, not only in his sovereignty, but also in his sovereign grace and sovereign judgment. There will be a day 
of divine judgment on the proud. That's what God is saying. Look at the final victory. Verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and that shall be brought low, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. We see that again. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. And from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, all of mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and clefts of the cliffs and before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop, verse 22, regarding man in whose nostril is breath. For of what account is he? And we see this overlapping, this, this development of overlapping between the two points. We see Jerusalem in the present situation, verses 6 through 9. But now we see this more future universal look of the day of the Lord, verses 12 through 21. Both of these interventions by God lead, lead, lead to the common human response of trying to hide in rocks for the splendor. And, and, and they both have in common this this proud man who will be humbled and this exaltation of God. So, so let's talk a minute about what is pride. Oxford Dictionary, pride is an unreasonable conceit of superiority. An overwhelming opinion of one's qualities. C.S. Lewis surprises spiritual cancer that eats the very, eats up uh, Pride, the spiritual cancer that eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. In Mere Christianity, if you haven't read that book, great book, C.S. Lewis, he said it was pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, end quote. A love of self, a magnification of self, a disdain for others. Synonymous words for pride are vanity and conceit. Arrogance, self-glorification, stuck up, a snob, full of yourself, know-it-all. It's about self-worship. You know, Satan's pride led him to, have, to, to, to try to take God's throne in heaven and resulted in his downcast, Isaiah 14. So pride, human pride, soars to the mountains seeking to exalt self and belittles God. That's what pride does. And God is determined and will pull all the rising ambitions, all the pride of mankind down on that day and he alone will be exalted. Family, God is a jealous God. God is jealous for his glory. Family, there will be no rivals. There will come a day when the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the almighty, all-powerful God will defeat, verse 12, and crush all all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up shall be brought low. 
And this highlight of chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, this humiliation and destruction of pride and this soul exaltation of the glory of God. And Isaiah does it really interestingly here. He contrasts this against all that we value in creation. Look with me in verse 13. It includes all the trees, 13, all the mountains, 14, all the fortifications, verse 15, and all these beautiful, tall, masted ships in verse 16. Nothing in all creation, nothing will be compared to the holy or otherness of the Lord. You see, during Isaiah's day, the people in Judah have taken pride in their fortified cities, their tall towers, their beautiful ships. And God's saying, you know what? Mm. I'll remove all that you're resting in, in the city, all that you're trusting in, I will remove. The strength, the beauty, the independence, this self-sufficiency. The point is that God is against all objects, all things that enable people to think that they, they could do this on their own. Gary Smith in his commentary, these verses communicate God's declaration of holy war against all, not just a few things, but all and everything that might possibly replace God. The fact that God is against this all-compassing pride who will defeat and crush all opposition against him, family, listen, it's meant to show us this morning, it's meant to show us and to focus our attention on the necessity of exalting God Glorifying God, walking in his ways, not ours. Trusting in possession, social position, political powers was never impressive. God is looking for humble people who are, who are confidently trusting and devoting their life to him. His ultimate purpose is for his own glory. Family, when God reveals himself to us like he is here, when, listen to me now. When God reveals himself as he's doing to us here, which is most satisfying, valuable, and praiseworthy, and says to us, come, and demands us to come to enjoy him, to worship him, and give him all the glory alone, to him alone, it becomes the fulfillment of our deepest longings. It brings our joy to completion. Jonathan Edward, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by his being rejoiced in. It's for our good he displays his glory. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Family, a day is coming. The day of the Lord where he will be exalted. Man, you have your day. You have your pride. You have your idols. But the final day will come. God will be vindicated. His glory will be manifested. The haughty man will be humble. Verse 17. Now verses 18 through 20 as we close. After this cataclysmic event, Isaiah addresses the people who refuse to release their idols, refuse to trust God, but trust in their own land and their own things. On that day, verses 18 through 20, sinners will flee to the rocks, to the caves, the terror of the Lord as he reveals his glory. The fear of the Lord will not be something by faith, but will be seen. All the nations will see his glory. God will judge the earth, and they will run from the terror of the Lord and the dread of his splendor. Idols, it says, 
Verse 20. Idols will be cast aside, tossed into dark, dark places where moles, look at this, moles and bats live. They'll, they'll seek refuge as God rises to judge the earth. And when God acts in judgment, all attempts to glorify the creation over the creator will vanish. Wickedness and idolatry will be crushed. But in that day, it'll be too late. In that day, it'll be too late. The dreadful day, men and women will hide and they'll run. There's no turning. You don't see them turning in faith. They're running from the terror of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty. Splendor is is God's visible manifestation. It is the display of his glory. Majesty comes of of a verb of exaltedness, superiority of status and being. It is an attempt to describe this visible appearance of the glorious God in his exalted fullness, exalted authority. Isaiah will see a glimpse of that in chapter 6. And it will humble him. Woe is me, he says. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I dwell in the midst of unclean lips where I've seen the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. And every generation from Isaiah to today has this opportunity to trust the Lord. The day is still here. We can stand in our pride or we can trust in the Lord. Verse 22 Stop regarding man. <laughs> After all this, stop regarding man in the pride of things, in the pride of life, in, in your own self. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? In other words, how can mere human beings and the gods they create with their own hands hope to stand up against God's judgment? Why would we think that we can cling to our idols, maintain our prideful positions, and think we're going to escape the coming judgment of our Creator, who, Genesis says, formed us from the dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And as God gives us his breath of life, we're foolish to think we're able to stand against him. And that's the bad news. But here's the good news, verse 5. Verse 5, the good news, right? Walk in the light of of the Lord. Turn from your sins, turn and, and, and escape judgment. Come to Jesus, who said, What? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And family, I will tell you this morning the only way, and the only way to come to Jesus is humbling yourself, humbling myself, confessing our sins. Remember, sin is not simply stealing and gossiping of that breaking God's law, but but pridefully believing that I can save myself that I can justify myself. Even good things like work and family and and, and relationships can turn to idle things when we make it that thing and say, I have achieved, I have arrived. It, it, It is something that makes me feel worthy and accomplished and purposeful and valued. Anything other than God is an idol. But to walk in light of the Lord is to follow the Lord Jesus. In order to follow the Lord Jesus, the master, the king, the savior of the Lord, we must turn our mastery, our kingship over to him. We we must stop trying to be our own justifier, trying to save and justify ourselves, which is really the manifestation of pride, is it not? It's to be like Satan. You remember when we learned in Philippians how Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of glory, humbled himself? And though he was and is God, he did not stay in glory with the Father, but willingly emptied himself. 
He took on the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is this condescension and this humiliation that the Father then exalts him. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him, super exalted, and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, can't hide, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Family, it was Jesus' condescension and humility. It, it was Jesus' condescension and humility that made it possible for him to be our sin substitute, our sin sacrifice, our atoning sacrifice. Jesus' condescension and humility is how he was able to bear God's just wrath for our sins, our just wrath for our sins and our pride. He humbled himself. I'm going to ask the band to come up and just give me one more second as they get ready. And I want to respond. I want all of us to respond to the word and to the song. My prayer, listen to me now. My prayer for all of us is that we look at Christ in the gospel who humbled himself to redeem us, to save us from our pride who redeemed us and saved us from our sins. My prayer is that as we contemplate the gospel with our mind, and we embrace the gospel with our hearts, it will humble us and cause us to remove all our idols, remove any and all pride, cause us to run and cling to Jesus. Now listen, who is better than all my sorrows, we're going to sing, better than all my victories, better than all my comforts, and better than all my riches. Father, thank you for giving us an opportunity to respond. There'll be a day that we won't be able to. But today's the day of salvation. Today's the day in which we respond by, by, by casting down our idols and placing our ultimate faith in you. Lord, we acknowledge your glory. We acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge your redemption through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on behalf of sinners, who absorbed the wrath we deserve on behalf of sinners, and then was buried and rose from the dead, rose from the dead, signifying to the world, holiness satisfied, forgiveness granted for those who will trust you. So Father, together as your children, we pray that our response will be one of faith this morning. In Jesus' good name, amen.